The recent overturn of Roe v. Wade has far-reaching implications for women's health care and reproductive care than simply allowing states to ban abortion. And there are a lot of considerations that reproductive-aged women may be facing now that maybe they weren't before. I've been fielding a lot of questions from my audience about what these changing laws mean when it comes to women's health with questions like, should I delete my period tracking app? What's the best option for birth control? If I have embryos frozen in an unfriendly state, should I move them? I've also been hearing from a lot of women who are planning to start trying to conceive but now are afraid of getting pregnant in case they find themselves in a situation where they require emergency care or are forced to carry a pregnancy to term when there's a medical issue with the fetus. So in this episode, I've brought on Dr. Carolina Sueldo, a double board certified fertility specialist currently practicing in her hometown of Fresno, California, to discuss some of these issues and more. Dr. Sueldo completed a residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the UCSF Fresno Medical Education Program, then went on to complete her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Connecticut while concurrently obtaining a master in science. Dr. Sueldo practices at Women's Specialty and Fertility Center and is also an assistant professor for the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UCSF Fresno. She is board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology, as well as reproductive endocrinology and infertility. We cover a lot of hot button topics in this episode, including cycle tracking, contraception, emergency contraception, how personhood laws and heartbeat laws will impact IVF and at which points in the IVF process, as well as how these changes will increase costs and decrease success rates, as well as the pregnancy risks that come with PCOS and fertility treatments. I do want to add a few caveats to our discussion. First, the Supreme Court decision did not make abortion illegal in the U.S. It just put the decision into the state's hands. Next, at the time of this recording, there are no laws currently preventing fertility treatments like IVF from happening. However, there are personhood laws on the books, and this is a rapidly changing landscape. Also, currently, Dr. Sueldo resides in California, which is a state where abortion is protected, and I live in New Hampshire, where abortion is currently allowed up to 24 weeks, but is not protected. All that being said, let's get started. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances 
so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. All right. Welcome, Dr. Sueldo. I am so excited you're here to talk with me today. Uh, Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you're located, all the basics. Sure, sure. Melissa, thank you so much for having me. So as you mentioned, I am a doctor. So I did my OBGYN residency training in California. So I'm an OBGYN by training board certified in that. So both written and oral exams for that. But then I subspecialized. So I did an additional three years of training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So the acronym for that is REI. You know, us doctors, we love our acronyms Mm -hmm. and also board certified in that. So double board certified in both specialties. And I've been practicing. Most people know me as a fertility specialist. I think that's the easiest way to to qualify me for non-medical people. And I'm currently practicing in California, in Central California. So I am super passionate about empowering women through education about their fertility, which is why I felt so strongly about coming on today to chat with you. Thank you so much. You did some of your schooling in Argentina too, correct? I did. I did. So my whole extended family is in Argentina still to this day. They live just outside of Buenos Aires, the capital. And so when I was 15, my parents decided they were, wanted to go, go back. So both my parents are from Argentina. So I actually ended up doing two, my last two years of high school there. And then I decided to stay for medical school. So I did my medical school training in Argentina. And I graduated at the age of 23 with my MD. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So great. So... You know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because one of the topics that's, you know, really big in the news right now is the the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade. And, you know, regardless of how one might feel about the topic of abortion for, you know, one's own personal preferences, there are some implications when it comes to reproductive care. And that's what I wanted to talk about is some some of those, you know, what ifs and what's being affected now. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a really, I mean, I will just qualify our conversation today by this is a this is an in-process situation and things are evolving every day. But we in the in the healthcare community and specifically in the women's health community are devastated. This was a huge, huge blow to women's health, to access to care, to safe care, and absolutely has implications for infertility and people undergoing infertility treatment. If you think about the timeline. IVF came around in a time when Roe v. Wade had already been in existence for about 10 years. Yes. So all of the procedures and research that has gone on in IVF has been with the understanding that Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. Exactly. 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 Yeah, I want to also caveat, you know, that that both you and I, I'm in New Hampshire, which, you know, we are not a protected state. And there are some limitations, but it's not a state where abortion has been overturned. And you're in California, correct? So 
Correct. You know? Correct. <laughs> Same is true here. California, yeah. I feel like, is the wild, wild west when it comes to yeah. anything medical. Well, I will. Yeah. And I will say, because I, I have done, you know, obviously local local media is very interested in this topic as well. And, you know, what I have been telling people is, yes, we are in California. We will not be directly impacted by this, but we will absolutely be indirectly affected because of the influx of care. There's going to those who can will be coming to us in California. And that has the potential to overwhelm the system. It has the potential to saturate the current resources that are already strained in the state. So I wouldn't sort of feel completely at ease by living in a state that it has not, you know, does not have one of these trigger bans or abortion laws going into effect. Yeah, we're, we're kind of, New Hampshire is funny where, you know, we're the live free or die state, but we're kind of tucked <laughs> right in the middle of New England, you know, surrounded by Vermont where, you know, everything's legal, Massachusetts yeah. that has, you know, universal health care. So we're sort of a little tiny insulated state, but California, you'll be absorbing a lot of, you know, absolutely neighboring states for sure. We'll talk about access, yeah. you know, for sure. But, you know, all of those Western states for people who are able to travel, California is a, a pretty convenient place to go. Yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah. So you also work a lot in PCOS. So I wanted to start our discussion with PCOS. You know, it's what a large proportion of my audience has. How is PCOS diagnosed? Yeah. So the first thing that I always tell patients is that, you know, it's important to understand that if you're skipping periods or if you're skipping cycles, that that's definitely not normal. Okay. And so that warrants further testing. And a lot of patients, because, okay, let me, let me backtrack because (laughs) PCOS is the most common cause of anovulatory cycles in women. A lot of providers automatically label all patients with PCOS. You walk in the door, you have irregular periods, you have PCOS. And it's really a lot more complex than that. First of all, there are a ton of other causes that can potentially produce irregular cycles. So a thorough evaluation needs to be performed, both from a laboratory standpoint, as well as imaging with a vaginal ultrasound. And the second thing is there's actually specific criteria that we use now for the diagnosis of PCOS. So Rotterdam criteria, and Rotterdam is a city in Europe where a bunch of experts got together and said, guys, we need to to get on the same page about what we're going to call PCOS. And so really... It's not, it's a little bit different than diabetes where, you know, you have a sugar above X and you're diabetic or a blood pressure above X and you're hypertensive. Really, we talk about a constellation of signs and symptoms. And if the patient meets enough of those, then she has the label or the diagnosis of PCOS. And so the Rotterdam criteria talks about irregular cycles. It talks about polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. And this is always a misnomer. So I can't tell you how many patients come to me, oh, I have cysts on my ovaries. No, that's not the case. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is really an egg excess syndrome. So it's having more ovarian volume or more follicles or eggs than the average female patient for your age. So that's super important. And then the third thing is clinical or laboratory signs of elevated testosterone or its cousins. So for example, acne in an adult female, chin hair growth, head hair loss. There's there's a number of different things. So those are really the big three. And then obviously exclusion of other causes. 
abnormalities in your thyroid, in your prolactin hormone. If you have, let's say you're taking steroids for a chronic condition like lupus, all of those things can potentially be causes for those irregular cycles that are not PCOS. So it's a whole discussion in and of itself, but generally speaking, I think it's super important that patients understand that just because you have irregular cycles does not mean, does not equate to PCOS automatically. Yeah. And similarly, just because you have a lot of follicles, it doesn't mean you have PCOS either. Also correct. So you typically need two out of the three of those Rotterdam criteria to make the diagnosis. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I see uh, a lot of misdiagnosed you know, there are other rare things that can look like PCOS in addition to, you know, hypothyroid affecting cycles, but functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, prolactin, yep. you mentioned, you know, yep. there's so many potential reasons why cycles can go missing. And similarly, I have people diagnosed on the basis of say acne, but then, mm-hmm. you know, acne plus, you know, their cycles are regular, but they have you know, polycystic ovaries, but then on the labs, there's no high androgens at all. So it's like, hmm, is is the acne being caused by high androgens or by something else, you know? Right, right. And I definitely, and I, like I said, it's a complex, it's, you know, even though PCI, and this is really funny, you actually take me back. I was sitting in a exam review course mm-hmm. and they, the first question was PCOS and someone was like, oh, that's like, that's so easy. Why would you ask that question? That's our bread and butter. We see that every day, all day. And the examiner was like, okay, you think it's that easy? Get up and let's talk about it. And so what people don't understand is even though it's a very common diagnosis, it's a very complex diagnosis. There's a ton of other metabolic components, et cetera. So it's really important to have a a discussion with your provider about, you know, do I really meet the criteria? Do I fit the criteria? And there's different diagnostics and there's different phenotypes and and sort of profiles of what PCOS can look like in different patients. Yeah, I have to say I'm I'm more surprised than not when I see a patient and they actually have had some of the testing to rule out some of those other conditions like the 17 hydroxy progesterone yep. and prolactin and I'm like well, whichever doctor you have, you need to hang on to because they are good. Keep keep them. Similarly, I had a, I actually had a question. It wasn't directly PCOS related, but on my board exam, I had a acanthosis nigricans question. I was like, I know that one. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's important that the provider be looking at the, at the patient, you know, completely. Mm -hmm. So to tie it back into our discussion today, one of the most important factors when it comes to preventing an unwanted pregnancy, or on the other hand, if you are trying to get pregnant with PCOS, being able to identify your fertile window, when you're ovulating, when you're fertile, when's the best time to time intercourse or IUI or whatever route you're going down. And with irregular cycles that are very common in PCOS, that can be really challenging. So mm-hmm. how, how are you recommending that people with PCOS track their menstrual cycles? That's a great, great question. So I want to actually backtrack to the very beginning of your question and talk about there's really two distinctions. So one is patients not trying to conceive 
And then the other is patients trying to conceive. There should really never be a time where a PCOS patient is not on some form of treatment. So they're either actively managing their PCOS, and we'll talk about that. So those are patients not trying to get pregnant, or they're actively trying to get pregnant. And those are patients who are trying to track their ovulation and intercourse and the things that we're talking about. So I just wanted to make that distinction and we can definitely chat about that more. So to answer your question about timing intercourse, if a patient is having irregular cycles, that means that ovulation is not occurring normally. And so for that patient, tracking ovulation is not going to be possible. Or it could be possible, but extremely, extremely frustrating, long-term, not something I would ever recommend to a PCOS patient. So really, if you have baseline irregular cycles and you're wanting to get pregnant, you need to be talking to your OBGYN provider and or your fertility specialist about trying to get your ovulation regular or you know regularized, if you will. And so the idea in a PCOS patient is to overcome that hormone imbalance. So we give medications. First line treatment is letrozole. Commercial name for that is Femara. And we give that for five days. And then we monitor it. Typically, a fertility specialist will monitor with ultrasound before and after the medication to check a patient's response. And what we're looking for is that dominant follicle that's getting ready to ovulate. And so typically, you'll do letrozole for five days. You'll monitor your response. You'll confirm that you actually have a follicle growing. And then with that, you can go ahead and time intercourse. And that timed intercourse can be either with an ovulation predictor kit if those work for you. A lot of PCOS patients have really high basal LH levels. And so the predictor kits can a lot of times give false positives. If that's the case, your provider may ask you to use a trigger shot, which is basically trying to mimic the LH surge of ovulation and with that time intercourse. So for example, you know, let's say your follicle is ready today. We would have you do the trigger shot tonight and then intercourse for the subsequent two days to cover that window of ovulation. And then approximately two weeks later, you're either going to take a pregnancy test and get a positive, hopefully, fingers crossed, or if it's negative, you should get a period spontaneously because you responded to the medication, you had an ovulatory follicle, which then produced a corpus luteum. And we know that that corpus luteum survives or hangs around in the body for about two weeks. Yes. So to go back to what you were saying about people who have PCOS who are trying to conceive or they're starting to think about it and they're having irregular cycles, mm -hmm. they think, you know, when you Google search online about fertility treatment and when to seek expert opinions, you know, when to sort of escalate up from your normal OBGYN to get some, some deeper fertility testing. Generally, the recommendation is if you're under 35, you know, if you've been trying for a year, then you should see a reproductive endocrinologist. But I tend to think if, if the reason why you're not getting pregnant is because you're not ovulating regularly, then you should escalate that a little faster, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I love, yeah, I love that you asked this question because time is really important. Mm -hmm but only so much. <laughs> so if you read the textbooks, the definition of infertility is typically a patient having unprotected intercourse for a year if they're under 35 or six months if they're over 35. However, the qualifier to that is if you have other risk factors and in that big bucket would be irregular cycles, would be known PCOS, 
would be things like very painful periods or very painful intercourse where there's potentially a suspicion for endometriosis, underlying chronic conditions or known male factor conditions, which can also arise. So I think it's really important that the time piece, yes, we use that, but it's definitely not the only thing we use. I even go so far in my counseling and and when I'm talking to patients about fertility awareness, if you're anxious about your fertility and want to know more, that's enough of a reason to seek out a fertility specialist consultation. You don't actually necessarily need a referral from your provider to get that opinion. And so I think it's really important for patients to understand that if they want to see a fertility specialist, obviously talk to your OBGYN first because they're your go-to and they're who you see every year. But if you're still anxious or your questions haven't been answered or you have additional questions that are beyond the scope of your visit with your OB, by all means, go ahead and schedule that visit with the OBGYN. So yes, to your point, absolutely. Irregular cycles don't wait go ahead and schedule that visit. Yeah, I love that proactive approach to having, I don't know if you know my background. I I worked in New York City in advertising for almost 20 years before I became a dietitian. And yeah, right around that 29, 30 year single in New York City, that's a good time to ask your your doc to just Uh take tabs on things because there's more options now in terms of things like, freezing your eggs, you know, just knowledge is power when it comes to fertility. A hundred percent. A hundred. And that's what I always tell people. I think even if you have a consultation and decide not to do any testing or have a consultation, do testing and decide not to do treatment. But I think that the more information you have, the more empowered you will be to make an informed decision. Absolutely. Were there any other things you wanted to cover when it comes to people with PCOS who are trying to conceive and what that pathway might look like? Yeah. So one thing I do want to add, when I talk about treatment, I typically talk about a three-pronged approach. Mm -hmm. It's very much, it very much includes beyond the scope of just the fertility medication. So in terms of that three-pronged approach, so the first one would be the actual fertility treatment, which I touched upon earlier. So oral medication like letrozole or Femara. We may also use Clomid. We may also use metformin if you're not responding, injectable medication, IVF, et cetera. So all the fertility treatments per se. But then the second one is supplements. Mm-hmm. And the data on supplements is obviously a lot more gray than, than actual FDA-approved medications. But there are fairly good studies now showing that myo-inositol and d inositol are helpful for patients with PCOS. And so that's something that a lot of fertility specialists will incorporate, you know, right out the gates, right in the beginning, along with your prenatal and along with any other supplements. And then the third thing is lifestyle. So for all my fertility patients, I'm always talking about these three things, the actual fertility treatment, the supplements, and then the lifestyle. And lifestyle as a dietitian may be where you come in, but really thinking about what can I do? What is in my control to optimize myself now that I'm embarking on this journey? And so really thinking about you know, caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, any other environmental exposures, and then nutrition. Nutrition is a huge piece I think, you know, for a long time, Western medicine in general did not pay attention to it. And I think really, particularly in the world of fertility, especially in the last, I would say, five or six years, we're really starting to acknowledge the importance of nutrition and the the importance of what that effect can have 
on the patient's underlying diagnosis. As you know, I absolutely 100% agree with that. I think, you know, when insulin resistance is such a large part of PCOS and, you know, the the pathology of of PCOS, we can improve that with diet and lifestyle. Absolutely. You know, blood sugar balancing, that's really where we come in and help people make it, make those changes in a way that's sustainable. You know, I hear mm-hmm. a lot. There are some fertility clinics that will give out very strict diets. Oh, okay. To their patients. Yeah. Gotcha. And it's just, you know, it's not sustainable. And yeah, I mean, I think it's know, really important to work with someone. And you didn't tell me to say this. This is truly something I believe in and <laughs> counsel patients every day about. You know, it's a multidisciplinary approach. It's really, you know, I'm going to work in my zone of genius and I'm going to ask you to work in your zone of genius. And how can we optimize to bring the patient to success? And, you know, there's, for example, I always tell patients the keto diet, that's actually terrible for PCOS patients. Intermittent fasting, that's terrible for PCOS patients. So it's really working with someone who genuinely understands the underlying disease and can help you manage that properly. Yeah, absolutely. We, we need to work in tandem. Because our goal is for the patient to have the best outcomes possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what would it look like for someone who has PCOS who's not trying to conceive? Yeah. So, you know, I feel like this is not talked about enough. And I really want to underscore here the general health risk factors for a PCOS patient in general. So you mentioned insulin resistance. We know that patients with PCOS have a fourfold increased risk of diabetes compared to their non-PCOS counterparts. So same age, same height, same weight, they have a fourfold increased risk. So super important that we're being proactive about managing that, that we're checking their sugars once a year, et cetera, et cetera. Metabolic syndrome. So looking at high cholesterol, we know that PCOS patients are much, you know, much more at risk for that high blood pressure, central adiposity, things like that. And then the big one, and I always tell patients, if you remember nothing else from today's visit, we talk about endometrial hyperplasia and cancer. And those are very fancy terms for cancer of the lining of the uterus. So what happens with PCOS as an egg excess disease is that hormones are in excess. So they're turned on all the time and they're never turned off. They're never switched off. So the lining of the uterus, which responds to estrogen in turn, or as a consequence, is also constantly turned on. And so at the molecular level, there are changes that begin to occur that can actually alter those cells and make them abnormal. Hyperplasia is a precancerous lesion, but you can actually evolve all the way up to cancer if you don't have progesterone in some form to combat that that hyperstimulation of estrogen. So the youngest patient that I actually saw cancer of the uterus was 24 years old. It was heartbreaking. And she ended up having to have her uterus taken out. So that's something that I really counsel patients strongly about. So yes, having no period is great, but there are other ways that we can do that safely, whether it's you know a progesterone-only pill, a birth control pill, a progesterone IUD. I mean, there's many other ways, but you definitely need to have that progesterone support to balance out that high estrogen that's circulating in a PCOS patient. Yeah, that's something I'm very passionate about. Three years ago, I was diagnosed with 
endometrial, intraepithelial neoplasia. I don't have PCOS and I've had, you know, regular cycles all my life. I just have super high estrogen, but it's why I'm so passionate about educating around the fact that you really need to be shedding your lining often and Mm-hmm. Irregular bleeding or bleeding between cycles or bleeding for long periods of time, those can be hallmark symptoms of, you know, developing endometrial cancer. So I always hear when I when I hear people with PCOS talking about, you know, irregular bleeding or bleeding for long lengths of time, my immediate thought is you need to go to your doctor now and tell them that this is happening because this is mm-hmm. not normal mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. a symptom of PCOS, you know? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I think it's really important to have yeah, a, a proactive management plan with your provider and just understanding that PCOS is not just about, oh, I'm not ovulating, so I, I have difficulty with pregnancy, but there's a lot of other general health components that come, come yeah, into Yeah, 50% play. of people with PCOS will have diabetes or prediabetes by the age of 40, which, you know, used to sound older to me before. <laughs> so it's like, oh, 40 is a baby, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS, and you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are, in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so back to, to tracking our cycles. How are you feeling? I mean, I, I'm not even really sure how I, I feel about this question these days about privacy of data. I think that is so tied into the current discussion that we're having is, you know, well, what if our fertility apps can be subpoenaed by a court? What, you know, what, what's game, but I mean, in theory, paper tracking would be equally liable to that, right? Like, yeah. So, so, okay. I will just qualify. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> Neither of us yeah. is lawyers. Yeah, I will exactly. I caveat that. Neither so, of us is a lawyer. Don't take so. this as legal advice. But, <laughs> but that said, I actually was on a call last week. So 
as fertility specialists, this is something we're particularly worried about. And we had two attorneys come speak to a whole group of us from across the country about the potential implications. And they actually were legitimately concerned. They actually said, you know, look, this is a very real problem and absolutely is a threat. The recommendation was make sure your patients are reading, you know, the terms that are like, six million pages <laughs> and nobody ever reads, they said they need to read that if they're going to be using a app uh, to track their menses, because if there absolutely is an issue of data potentially being used. And so a lot, there's actually been several colleagues of mine who have now put out, you know, how do we track this paper-wise? I guess the thought process on paper is it can't just be pulled randomly. Yeah. And theoretically, I guess you could shred it or, I mean, I'm not, you know, like, I, I don't know. I was thinking, but, but yes, I, I would, I guess, you know, my general response is yes, I would be concerned if I was a fertility patient living in a state whose laws are potentially changing with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, same. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it also underlines why it's important to be working with credentialed, licensed healthcare professionals, because you and I have to abide by a little thing called HIPAA. Yep. Whereas someone who is say a fertility coach or, or something has no such regulation protection. No, right. No, no. right. So even if they wanted to, they could potentially be subpoenaed and then they would have to. Yeah. Right. Where if, you know, it happens in practice where, you know, if, if one of my clients was trying to conceive and, you know, had a miscarriage or, you know, had further testing and something happened, you know, but we are not obligated to share that information, Mm -hmm. whereas someone else might be. Mm -hmm. So just cautious about who, who you share your info with. Yeah. I think right now, I think there's a lot of unknowns. I'll, I'll start with that. And I think right now, given all of the unknowns and given all of the sort of shaky ground that things are on right now, I think it's always better to err on the side of being too cautious than potentially saying, Oh, it's nothing for me to worry about. And then finding yourself in a pickle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So obviously, effective contraception is really important right now for those who are not trying to get pregnant or not wanting to get pregnant. What are some of the the options for birth control that you're discussing with your patients or that, that you think are more effective? So when I was practicing as a generalist, And I would always ask patients, you know, what method of birth control are you using? And the answer was none. And I said, well, the follow-up question is, okay, are you trying to get pregnant? And the answer was no. So then I'm like, okay, so you're not using birth control, but you're not trying to get pregnant. There's a mismatch there. Let's talk about this. So, so yeah, I definitely think particularly with today's landscape, I would strongly encourage being proactive if you really are not ready to be pregnant, even if you have irregular cycles, I still recommend contraception because we know that even in the setting of irregular cycles, occasional or spontaneous sporadic ovulation can occur. There are a multitude of birth control options and speaking with your OBGYN provider or even a fertility specialist is absolutely recommended. You have hormonal and you have non-hormonal. 
The non-hormonal would be the copper IUD. So somebody who doesn't want to have any impact of hormones, you know, you can always go the copper IUD route. And then there's all the different hormonal options. So it really depends on what you're comfortable with, what approach. For example, some people don't want to take a pill every day. Okay, well, what about a patch once a week? What about the Nuva ring? You can insert a vaginal ring. What about the Nexplanon or the other, the Norplant? There's you know a few other ones that are basically an implant in the arm. The progesterone IUD, which is a great option for PCOS patients who are, let's say, in their older teens or you know college years and wanting to wait a few years. So I really think it's having, I mean, there's just such a wide breadth. I think when people think of birth control, they automatically think of the combination estrogen progesterone pill. And and that is a great option. I personally used it for over 15 years. So I, you know, I'm very pro birth control pills. There's a ton on the market, but understanding that that's not the only option. There is a ton of other options and, and really trying to understand the different, you know, pros and cons of each in terms of what might be the best option for you. Yeah, I I think a lot of people feel almost shamed about taking the pill. You know, there's a lot of narrative out there around, you know, it's not your natural cycles, obviously, like it, that's how it works. But, you know, it really, much like everything else, it's your choice. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are times in your life where there might be that, that might be the best choice. I think in particular, a lot of my um, like grad school students or, you know, people who really are just very busy and don't have time to be consistent with, you know, other methods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And for those people, I mean, again, there's so many options today that it's really like that could be a conversation in and of itself. But I think it's really important to understand, okay, let's say the pill is not an option. There's about four or five different other approaches that don't involve taking a pill. So you definitely have alternatives that you can discuss with your OBGYN provider. Yeah. And again, to circle back to, if you're having regular cycles, it's easier to predict you know, what those, the sort of danger points in your cycle might be for getting pregnant. But when you're having very long cycles or irregular cycles, you really may have no idea when your fertile window is until you get your period. And then it's like, okay, well, you ovulated two weeks prior to that, but you know, it's, it's harder to use methods like barrier methods and things like that. If you aren't quite sure when during your cycle you need to be using them. Yeah. And I will say barrier methods are a good option. I would just argue that they're a good sort of second line option. Mm -hmm. I would always encourage patients, you know, regular or not, if you are not ready to get pregnant, you need to be doing something proactively yourself. Yeah. Because if those second line barrier, those are much more likely to fail. I mean, we've all been there where, you know, the condom breaks or whatever happens. And then you're having to turn to the third line options, which is the emergency contraception. And I know we were going to touch on that briefly, just that those options are kind of up in the air. That's another thing that it's really kind of muddled right now as to what's available, where and for whom. Yeah. And another objection that I, you know, you were saying there's a lot of shame around the birth control pill. Another common objection that I get a lot from patients with regards to the pill is it's going to 
you know, deplete my egg supply, or it's going to, it's going to make me have irregular cycles when I come off of it. Or, you know, my cousin took birth control and then couldn't get pregnant or my friend took birth control and then, you know, didn't get a cycle for six months after or whatnot. So there's, there's a lot of myths around the impact of birth control pills on the menstrual cycle. And so I just want to sort of nip that in the bud here and put that to bed in terms of, you know, really the only consequence of the birth control is to prevent the dominant follicle from ovulating in a particular given month. So lack of ovulation, it does not impact your egg supply whatsoever, and it does not affect your baseline fertility whatsoever. So coming off of the birth control, you are going to return to your baseline fertility. If your baseline fertility was irregular cycles, well, guess what? Your cycles are going to be irregular off of the birth control. So I really want to make sure that that myth is dispelled because I hear that all too often. And there is extensive, at this point, extensive literature regarding the birth control pill and the the lack of association with fertility. Yeah, I hear it on my ends too about, you know, what should I do a birth control detox after I come off or, you know, and I, I I kind of feel boring in saying it because I'm just like, all you need to do is do the things we're working on anyway, like balancing Mm -hmm. blood sugar and increasing nutrients and eating regular Mm -hmm. balanced Mm -hmm. meals. Like there's nothing fancy you have to do. And you know, honestly, for, for my clients who've been working with me for a while on those things, at least, you know, when they do decide to come off the pill, it's a non-event, you know, it's just kind of, yep. But like, exactly. Like you said, if you went on the pill in the first place, because you were having terrible acne or heavy periods or irregular periods, it's very likely those are going to come right back once you stop. Exactly. 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 Yeah. So, you know, obviously a really big concern right now for anyone trying to conceive is that something may go wrong, you know, and they may end up in a position where they need medical care and they're finding themselves without options in the state. I know, you know, with PCOS in particular, things like miscarriage risk being slightly higher, things like gestational diabetes and hypertension you know, is, is PCOS one of the conditions where ectopic risk is higher or is that, you know, more with other conditions like endometriosis? Sure. So yes. And thank you for bringing this up because this is a huge concern, even in my world, you know, and I, I tell people, you know, my patients, these pregnancies are the most desired pregnancies on the planet. There is nobody that wants this pregnancy more than, than my patient. And even in those scenarios, we sometimes end up either with a miscarriage or an ectopic or for X reason, the pregnancy is going to be terminated. And so to think that, you know, it's, it's anything other than medical is just, is just not accurate. So anyway, that's just my two cents, me on my little soapbox for a a hot minute. So with regards to your question specifically... So PCOS patients, we know, have an increased risk for miscarriage above the baseline population. And we don't have a great explanation for why. Um, There's the potential of, you know, patients with PCOS a lot of times tend to have obesity as well as as a parallel symptom. And we know that obesity in itself is an independent risk factor for miscarriage. But also we believe that there may be an underlying egg issue 
or, or corpus luteum issues. So those are all things that we are thinking about when we're thinking about miscarriage and PCOS patients. So currently, I think it's important to understand what is a miscarriage. So when we talk about miscarriage, we talk about either a pregnancy that has formed, but it's an empty sac, and we call that a blighted ovum. The other diagnosis would be, for example, if the pregnancy develops, we see the fetal pole, but then there's no heartbeat. So that's a missed miscarriage. And then you have the patient who has a a gestational sac, a fetal pole, and a heartbeat, but is actively bleeding. We see the cervix open, basically like an imminent miscarriage, if you will. And then you have a chemical miscarriage where you know the levels are positive, but we never reach the ultrasound stage. And then completely separate from miscarriage, you have ectopic pregnancies. And ectopic pregnancies are pregnant, viable pregnancies sometimes, non-viable pregnancies other times, but always they have implanted outside the uterus. So always those pregnancies are not going to be successful and need to be terminated, whether it's medically or surgically. And the reason for that is because if the pregnancy continues to grow, for example, in the fallopian tube, then that tube can rupture, the patient can bleed, and women actually used to die from ectopic pregnancies. So maternal mortality was definitely increased back before we knew how to treat or were able to treat ectopic pregnancies appropriately. So for patients who have an ectopic pregnancy that is considered a surgical emergency, that is something that is going to be actively treated. I can tell you just from stories from my colleagues in states like Texas and Missouri, they're actually having difficulty obtaining those medications and difficulty getting the hospitals on board for surgery and they're having to fight that. And so, you know, there's discussions with attorneys and whatnot that are coming into play in the, in the clinical setting, which is crazy if you think about an ectopic pregnancy, you know, and the potential risks surrounding that. As far as miscarriage is concerned, you know, I think the only scenario would really be when there's still a heartbeat. But again, that can also be life-threatening. Because for those patients, if they're actively bleeding, they could also bleed out. Those patients also used to die. So really important to understand, you know, we're, we're starting to get a little bit more clarity as the sort of dust settles from Roe v. Wade. But very much in the last few weeks, this has been an ongoing debate and an ongoing turmoil within the, not only the fertility world, but the OBGYN world as well. Yes. So there's definitely this question you know, especially when there's that really vague legal language around emergency situations, you know, if it's an emergency situation sure. for the mother, but it it's very vague. It's like, well, when is it an emergency? Is it, you know, when her blood pressure bottoms out, when she's in sepsis? Like, you know, are you able to treat her once she's at that point and have her fully recover, you know, in a normal way? I just wanted to check with you just for, for clarity. Mm-hmm. How is an ectopic diagnosed? So there's a couple different ways to diagnose an ectopic. Typically what we find, so there's, there's a couple different presentations. In my world as a fertility specialist, because we're monitoring patients so early on in the pregnancy, we typically will first begin to see that the hormone levels are not rising as they should. So abnormally rising HCG levels they may complain of some spotting, not really heavy bleeding, but more spotting. And then when we do the ultrasound, we don't see anything in the uterus. And so as the patient goes from week four to week five to week six, we can sometimes see a mass 
develop on, you know, either side of the uterus separate from the ovary. Sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, you can actually see the gestational sac, you can actually see the fetal pole and you can actually see the heartbeat. But you know, being outside the uterus, that it's absolutely not going to be a successful pregnancy and in fact could be a risk to the mother. Yeah. So, you know, you are working with people who who are primarily actively trying to get pregnant as, you know, for, for my clients who are also actively trying to get pregnant, they tend to know they're pregnant like the minute it happens, <laughs> you know, yes. or, you know, cause they're aware they're, yeah. they're, you know, they're in tune it. and they're tracking and they're looking for it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So they're, they're, ahead of the game. Yeah. Even so, like for someone who's who's actively trying to conceive, what's the earliest that someone could find out that they're pregnant? So if you had an ovulation, confirmed ovulation, you had timed intercourse, etc., and you're looking for it, the earliest that you can detect positive HCG is approximately one week post-ovulation because that's around the time of implantation when HCG be- starts to you know, be present. Most patients won't know until a week later. So two weeks post ovulation when they don't get a period. And so at that point, they'll check, they'll get a positive and then we'll go from there. And still other patients, if they have a history of irregular cycles may not be so, you know, alerted by the lack of immenses and may actually wait a little bit longer. Yeah. I would say for people who are, are pretty in tune with their cycles, you know, you'd probably miss a period, wait a few days. And at that that point, you're at about five weeks or almost five weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost five. Yep. And that, what, you know, from a medical perspective, when is the first heartbeat usually detectable? So typically by ultrasound, we can see a heartbeat on transvaginal ultrasound somewhere around the six-week mark. That's typically the earliest that we'll see a heartbeat. So for example... And everyone's protocol is a little bit different. So don't, you know, don't take me by the book on this. But for example, in my clinic, if a patient has done IVF, we do our first pregnancy test or first blood level 10 days after the embryo transfer. That first blood level puts her at four weeks. And then we'll do two more blood levels to make sure things are going up appropriately through weeks four and five. And then we'll do that first ultrasound in week six. And if that's looking good, we'll do a follow-up ultrasound in week eight. And then if that's looking good, then if she's checked all those boxes, then she graduates back to her OBGYN. Isn't it amazing? I mean, when you start working in this world, it's like, there are so many points where things can go wrong. Yep. You're just like, yep. it's mind blowing that people manage to have children all these years, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. When you think about, it's actually... Pretty incredible if you think about all the things that have to come together and all the things that have to happen for a successful pregnancy to occur. Yeah, I was, you know, bringing up this sort of, you know, er, finding out you're pregnant early enough. You know, some some states have total bans, some states have six week bans, some states have, you know, so called heartbeat bans. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of, of people, unless they're actively trying to conceive, by the time they find out that they're pregnant, they're already over or very close to that line, correct? Correct, correct, correct. Most people, unless it's a fertility patient, as you mentioned, or someone who's actively searching for pregnancy, for most patients, they won't find out they're pregnant at least 
until week five, six. And then by the time they're getting in to see their doctor and having their first ultrasound, it could be anywhere from, excuse me, anywhere in that first trimester, all the way from six up to 12. And then, you know, sort of during the pregnancy, there are a few points where you're checking for normal development as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, I know there, is it 10 weeks where they do the, the early testing? Yep. Not after nine weeks, you can do the, what's called NIPT or non-invasive prenatal testing. And that's a blood test in mom looking for the DNA of the fetus. And then they also may do an ultrasound in the first trimester around 12-ish weeks looking for the nuchal translucency. And then around 15 to 18 weeks, you'll have your what's called a high definition or or a high detailed anatomy ultrasound looking at all the different parts. Yeah. I mean, I know nobody wants to think about pregnancy complications, but you know, they they do happen. And as you said, they're often the most heartbreaking because these babies are very wanted at that point. Mm-hmm. Medical mm-hmm. termination is never something someone, you know, wants to have done. Absolutely. If they can avoid it. So let's walk through, you know, the, the IVF process a little bit. Sure. Currently, again, big caveats on all of this episode. Currently, <laughs> there are no laws in effect that are limiting IVF at the moment. That I'm aware of. Now, that is absolutely an ongoing discussion because there are active personhood laws occurring in at least three states that I'm aware of. And I have colleagues who have been called as expert witnesses to testify. Okay. So yes, at the time of this recording. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 This could change. But, you know, obviously it's something we're talking about and planning for and thinking about because there are multiple stages during IVF that these laws could impact. So explain it like I'm five. How do you make an embryo when you're doing IVF? So the idea behind IVF is the first part of stimulation is to grow as many eggs as possible for that woman for that particular month. So that number is going to vary, but we hope to get more than one. So the goal is to get multiple. And then once we take those eggs from her, we are looking for the mature eggs. So the ones that are capable of being fertilized by sperm, and we put them together with sperm. And then the next day we check for fertilization. So a fertilized egg is what we call a pronuclei. It is now an embryo. So it contains both egg DNA and sperm DNA. And that is the day after the egg retrieval procedure. So then as an embryo or as a pronuclei, it now has to grow in culture and it grows for three to five days. So typically there is a check done on day three and on day five to assess their development. We know that in that embryo culture process, most embryos are not going to develop. So typically... The the kind of the average discussion is a 50% conversion from fertilization to blastocyst. So I'm pulling numbers arbitrarily out of the air here, but if we have 10 embryos fertilized, we would anticipate only about four or five in the best case scenario, four or five to make it for usage, if you will. Now, an embryo in and of itself, whether it's in the IVF lab or in the patient's body, cannot survive on its own. That embryo has to attach. It has to implant into the mother's uterus. And then because of those nutrients and supplementation is able to continue to grow and develop. Even still within the mother's womb, we have a period of what we call viability. So if the patient delivers before a certain time 
And generally that mark is somewhere around 24 weeks, depending at your institution. So before 24 weeks, if the mom goes into preterm labor for X reason or delivers for whatever reason, that fetus is not able to survive in the world outside of the mother's womb. Okay. And so then beyond 24 weeks, which is what we term viability, that's when a a fetus is able to survive on its own. Usually a 24 weeker is still ending up in the ICU. Usually that 24 weeker is still at risk, but we start to at least see viability. And so then you have different checkpoints, you know, 28 weeks, 34 weeks. And then once you hit 37 weeks where you hit term. So that in a nutshell is IVF kind of from start to finish. When we talk about personhood bills, those bills are based on the premise that life begins at fertilization. So rewinding back pre-24 weeks, pre-implantation, pre-embryo growth at the time when the sperm fertilizes the egg to become an embryo, that is when they are deeming that life begins. And so that will have a direct impact on how IVF is performed currently in this country. What that will likely mean is that we expose a lot less eggs to the sperm. And and so the goal in that scenario would be to only grow one or potentially two embryos so that if both are quote unquote usable, then they both get used in that cycle. The issue there is efficiency. So efficiency and cost, I should, I should qualify both actually. We know that IVF, just like spontaneous conception, is not an efficient process. So we rely on the creation of multiple embryos to be able to offer or optimize success rates to patients. With cost, if you're having to do for, you know, unfreeze one or two eggs at a time, fertilize them and grow them, that is an extreme financial burden to the couple relative to what we're offering today. The third thing, and I think, you know, something that people don't think about is the use of genetic testing for genetic diseases. So for us to be able to test for things like cystic fibrosis or for things like Down syndrome or for things like, you know, Huntington's disease. I mean, there's any number of genetic diseases that we're able to identify today before we actually implant that embryo that would not be allowed to be performed based on these personhood bills because we rely on creating as many embryos as possible and subjecting them to genetic testing to make sure that that embryo is unaffected before we actually put it back into the patient's uterus. So it would dramatically impact the way that we are practicing IVF in this country. And you know, I mentioned the two attorneys that we were all on a call with last week. They are actively recommending that we tell patients in those states, if you have frozen embryos currently in those states, we strongly suggest moving them. So that is not, you know, vetted legal advice, but that was a strong recommendation by those two attorneys. And for patients who have been asking me on my social media or colleagues and friends who have gone through infertility and created embryos, they are, you know, if they did it at the time that they were in one of those states, they are now actively looking to move those embryos. And it's no small feat to move embryos across state lines. It's expensive. Yeah, it's something, I mean, thankfully, right, exactly. So thankfully, from a medical standpoint, thankfully, it's something that we do every day. So from a medical standpoint, the risk to the embryos, it's not zero, but it is low. But logistically can be, you know, a nightmare in terms of, you know, coordinating with the transport team and coordinating with the clinic and, you know, where are they going to go and, you know, those types of questions. So definitely an added 
you know, headache and stress to those couples? So two things, going back to the number of eggs retrieved. From a PCOS perspective, this is where PCOS patients tend to be overachievers, correct? So they get a <laughs> yep. lot of eggs retrieved. Yep. Mm-hmm. I have heard, and you know, I'm just not digging deep into the research here. So my impression was that freezing embryos has better outcomes in terms of pregnancy rates versus freezing eggs and then fertilizing after. Is that not correct? Or is it, you know, sort of similar efficacy? Sure. So I would say post, so pre-2012, I would agree with that statement. So pre-2012, we were using slow freezing in the lab. And so for that reason, eggs did not survive well. So patients who needed to freeze eggs for future fertility, for example, you know, because they were going to cancer, exactly, chemo, et cetera, we were actually recommending them to consider fertilizing the eggs with a donor sperm so that the embryos could be frozen and, and maintained because the likelihood of success was so low with egg freezing. Post-2012, in the last decade, the freezing techniques have changed. So we now use something called vitrification, which is fast freezing. And and what we found, a a sort of a benefit or an upside to this, is that eggs survive much better. And so now there's really been a shift. And and this is why egg freezing has been kind of the trend and talked about so much lately is because we're now able to offer it, whereas before we weren't. But really having that discussion with your provider in terms of their particular clinic, what is the success rate? So I typically say, even for my married patients, you know, eggs are easy because there's only one owner. (laughs) And so if it's for an elective situation, then I strongly recommend egg freezing. To your point, from an efficiency standpoint, yes, it is still true that freezing embryos is easier. There's a couple of reasons for that. So one is you know what you have at the end of the day. So when you freeze eggs, when you come back to use them in two, three, five, 10 years, whatever, first they have to survive the thaw, the unfreezing process. Then they have to survive or then they have to be fertilized by sperm. And we know that there's at least today a 70, 80% average fertilization rate. And then they have to grow into that embryo. Remember we mentioned earlier, there was at least a 50% attrition there. So even though you freeze 10 eggs, we know we're not going to end up with 10 embryos versus if you fertilize those eggs at you know the time they're retrieved, you create those embryos and you freeze, I don't know, let's just say three embryos. When you come back in two, three, five, 10 years, you already know that you have those three embryos to work with. So the issue that patients with PCOS face as it pertains to fertility treatment in general, but specifically to IVF, is a lot of times we trade off quantity for quality. So we may get 30, 40 eggs from that patient but the quality may not be good. And so we, we may not end up with, you know, a number of embryos that reflects, you know, the number of eggs that were retrieved. Yeah. So back to the efficiency. So if you're in a situation where you're only defrosting two at a time, right. Right. it should take a number of defrosts to get exactly. to a point where you have one to two embryos. One to hundred so- percent. Yeah. Currently, like what do people do with excess embryos? Yeah. So there's basically, you know, three options. So, well, I'm sorry, obviously they can always use them themselves. That's definitely something. 
We also, for patients who, so one of the options would be discarding, and that's done in a very ethical fashion in the IVF laboratory. For patients who discarding is something they're not comfortable with, sometimes we'll transfer during their menses where we know implantation would be at its lowest. So it's a form of discard, but for the patient, it's, it's a different you know, sensation. The second would be donation to research, particularly, especially for patients, excuse me, for embryologists who are new and who are training. This is a huge help because it allows them to practice their technique before they actually work on you know, live gametes, so egg, sperm, and embryos. The other would be donation to research. So either donation to training or education and then donation to research if there's ongoing clinical trials. And then the third would be donation to another family. So we are beginning to see that a little bit more and more. I would say I've been in practice now seven years. I'm definitely seeing that trend become a little more common where patients have completed their family and you know are not not wanting to donate to research or education. They really want to help out another couple going through what they went through. And so an altruistic embryo donation. And I'm seeing that more and more. So those would be really the three options. So I guess where where the laws might impact this is they they might force people into a decision or having to do something. Well, so the issue, so yes, but the issue that we're, facing with the personhood bills is we're not even going to be able to freeze embryos. So that wouldn't even be an option moving forward. So it would have to be frozen eggs. And then obviously eggs could potentially be discarded or then donated to somebody else for, you know, research, education, or, or another family. Yeah. I'm, I'm old enough to remember sort of the earlier days of IVF and, um, you know, people go undergoing fertility treatments and having high numbers of multiple Mm -hmm. because back in those days when it wasn't as effective, you would have to implant, you know, multiple or six, eight, you know, in order to end up with one or possibly two babies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the success rates have gotten so, so good recently that most clinics won't implant more than two. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say there's definitely been a push in the field given the improvements in the IVF lab, given the improvements in our freezing techniques, given the improvements in just our understanding and our knowledge. I would say that the vast majority of clinics are transferring one to two embryos. There are some scenarios where potentially you're transferring three. I've never seen more than three transferred in my decade of between practice and training. Yeah. So this definitely, this law would definitely impact practice then. Sure. Because obviously, you know, the number of embryos to transfer. I mean, I will say that ideally we want to transfer one healthy embryo for one healthy baby at a time. That is always the goal of every fertility specialist. Where that would impact practice is in the creation, right? So if we create five embryos, and we, we're definitely not going to use all five. So if the law doesn't allow us to freeze them for future use, then we, we won't be able to create five embryos to begin with. And that's where the thawing, you know, one to two or three at a time would come into play. And that's what's going to increase cost and make success rates go down because we're, yeah. So it's messy. <laughs> it's still very it's much, messy. very, very much up in the air right now. But 
Yeah. And what, what the, what the legal counsel is telling a lot of us is that, you know, a lot of this is going to play out in the next six to 12 months. And as cases come forth and as precedents are set, that is going to be sort of the new normal, if you will. And so really, I think, you know, we're going to, we're going to watch this evolve and it's just, yeah, overall, it's very unfortunate, but obviously, you know, where I stand. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, it's nice as the organizations are, are sort of standing behind this as well. I saw ACOG made a statement. Yep. The APR. ASRM as well. So the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. SMFM, which is maternal fetal med. I mean, there was multiple, multiple societies and many in women's health who have taken a very, thankfully, because usually societies, they try to be politically correct. And so they try to stay kind of, you know, PC, but thankfully on this issue, they have taken a very strong stance, including ASRM. I'm actually really proud of of the way that they've addressed this and and the stance that they've taken in terms of, you know, decisions regarding women's health need to be between the patient and the provider period full stop. I mean, that's just, that's just it. Yeah, I wish my organization would come up for <laughs> an organization that's like 98% women, women, one might expect, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm so glad there are doctors like you speaking out about the implications and sharing your knowledge in this field, you know, and how it's, it's basically hampering you from doing your job and making the best decisions for your patients in conjunction with your patients, you know, which is really exactly where the decision lies. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about all of this. I always like to wrap up with one thing you would want people to take away from this episode. One thing I want people to take away from this episode is be your own advocate. And I know sometimes the word advocate can have, you know, a little bit of a connotation to it, but I really truly believe, you know, don't be afraid to ask the questions. Don't be afraid to seek out, you know, consultation. I can't tell you, you know, in my practice, how many women come to me and I didn't know, I wish someone would have told me, or, you know, my doctor said, just keep trying or don't worry, or, you know, take progesterone once a month and then have intercourse if you're PCOS and you're still not ovulating. So it's really not doing anything. And I just, you know, there's so many stories of that. And so again, the reason I'm here is to empower through education. And so if there's one message I can give to people is, you know, be your own advocate, don't be afraid to ask the question because if your doctor is the right fit for you, then they're not going to have a problem having that conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, when you find a good doctor, hang on to them. <laughs> yes. Hang on. To them. <laughs> exactly. Tell everyone where they can find you and how they can work with you. Yeah, no, thank you for asking. So I am on all the social media channels primarily on Instagram as Dr. Carolina Sweldo. And I'm also on YouTube. So please be sure to go hit click and subscribe. I actually just dropped my episode on the menstrual cycle this morning. So yeah, feel free to see me there. And uh, I'm always willing to answer questions in comments or DMs if you want to reach out to me directly. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Dr. Sweldo. And thank you to our audience. We'll see you next week. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.